Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning there, Solomon the Wise wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. He wrote, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise, says Solomon, is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, in the house of pleasure. Listen to Robert Browning. He was a 19th century English playwright and poet. He wrote this, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word she said. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. The Apostle Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10. He says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. For all that is written about our Lord and Savior in the Gospel records, Interesting that there, there isn't an account of him laughing. Did he laugh? Absolutely. He was, he was the happiest and most joyful man who, who ever lived or could ever be. And yet he is described by the prophet as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was, no doubt, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that for the joy, for the joy set before him, he, that is our Lord, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of his Father. Friends, it was for joy. It was pure joy that enabled him to endure the cross. It was that eternal and infinite joy and blessedness. It was, if you will, that happiness that enabled him to endure the wrath of God. It was joy that enabled him to despise and and to look past the shame, and to triumph over the shame. Joy that that enabled him to despise the shame of an ignominious death. Certainly he was sorrowful, and yet always rejoicing. I I am generally not a sad person. I am not emo, and I am not introverted. My wife thinks of me as an optimist, and I believe that I am. I tend to be a happy person, not prone to melancholy. So I'm not preaching this sermon to you this afternoon to make you melancholy or to make you overly introspective. That said, I believe that that biblical Christianity protects us. It protects us from shallow, slap-happy, trivial, hollow Christianity. A Christianity that is 
smiley, but empty. A superficial Christianity that sounds more like positive thinking. Oh, just have faith. Uh, just, just believe. Or it's going to get better. Or how about this? Well, look on the brighter side. We don't need triviality. Friends, we, we don't need shallow. Shallow Christianity is not the religion of the Bible. Jesus knows nothing of slap-happy, shallow Christianity, which is precisely why the Beatitudes are so important and why we focus our attention this afternoon on the first Beatitude. And so we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 5. Beloved, hear God's word. We begin in verse 1. As I mentioned, our focus will be on verse 3. And seeing the multitude, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer. God of all light and truth, we come now to the center of our worship, to the exposition of your holy and living word. Send now your spirit. Lord, do what no man can do, what no song can do, what we cannot do apart from your help. Lord, convict us afresh and shine light into those dark corners of our hearts. Make us today more like our Savior, who was the happiest man who ever lived, and yet a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Glory to the risen and ascended Christ, Glory to Christ in the exposition of His Word. Amen. Amen. John MacArthur, one of the great pastors and preachers of our generation, he wrote this, Until a soul is humbled, until the inner person is made poor in spirit, Christ will not be precious, because that person is obscured by self. Until one knows just how helpless, how worthless, how sinful he or she is in and of themselves, they will never see how mighty, how worthy, and glorious Christ is. Until one sees how doomed they truly are, they will not see what a Redeemer and Savior our Lord is. Until one sees their own poverty, they will certainly not see the riches of God. It is only when one admits to their own deadness that Christ will give them life. End quote. And so the proverb is demonstrated. 
Proverbs 16.5, everyone who has a proud heart is an abomination to the Lord. We will not be filled until we are empty. We will not be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. And we will not live until we admit that we are in fact, apart from Jesus Christ, dead in our transgressions and sins. And so Jesus places this beatitude first because humility is the foundation of all of the other graces in our lives. Beloved, let me give you an outline so that you can follow along as we break this simple verse down. Firstly, a general introduction to the Beatitudes. A general introduction to the Beatitude attitudes. What are these Beatitudes? Secondly, what is this poverty of spirit? What does it mean to be spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit? Thirdly, the poorest are those who possess the kingdom. And finally, how can we know if we're humble? How can we know if we have this poor spirit? Beloved, there is an order to the Beatitudes. They are, they are progressive. They are progressive in as much as one leads to the other in logical succession. The poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt and destitute, they will mourn, they will lament, the condition of their souls and their standing before God. And thus, they will be humbled. They will be meek, as Jesus teaches us. The product of which, this meekness, will be a, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not, not their own righteousness, not self-righteousness, but a hunger and a thirst for God's righteousness. A hunger and a thirst, really, for God Himself. And once they are filled by God's grace, look at verse 7, they will be merciful. Having themselves received mercy from God. Friends, who, who ever heard of a person who was poor in spirit and proud? Who, who was bankrupt and broken and yet conceited and overconfident and big-headed? Jesus says that it is the broken and the humble and the contrite the spiritually derelict who come to God for mercy. And beloved, they will receive mercy. They get mercy. And thus, they're merciful. And, and will continue, they will continue to, to receive mercy and get, as it were, mercy from God because mercy begets mercy. Grace in our souls it gives birth to grace in our lives. God's grace in our souls makes us gracious people. It is grace for grace. Verse 8. These people are the pure in heart. Not, not spotlessly perfect, God forbid, but pure. Pure in so much as Jesus Christ and the gospel message has radically and powerfully transformed them internally, whose lives then manifest the fruit of, of that internal reality. Their, their hearts have been and are being purified, and so they will see God. They will see God. 
Romans 5.1 says this, having been justified by faith, made righteous by faith, we have, Paul says, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and thus, it is the Christian who is a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. And peace here is not world peace. We're not talking about secular peace. World peace and secular peace without peace with God and Christ is a false ideal because man, since the fall, has been at enmity with God. True peace among men must begin with God. And then, having peace with God, we will be peacemakers in bringing others to God. This peacemaking is Godward and not secular. This, this peacemaking is, is divine and not worldly. And so at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, our peacemaking politics, our, our strategy for world peace is Christ and Christ alone. The gospel of God's salvation, the good news of God's kingdom. This is our peacemaking politics. And the platform from which that message will reach individuals and the world is the church. But we've got to get the gospel right. We've got to get the Word of God right. Apart from the biblical gospel, beloved, you know as well as I do that there will be no church. Lastly, before I get carried away, the broken and the humble, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemaking Christian. Friends, we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Since man is at enmity with God, they will be at enmity with his children. The darkness hates the light. Light came into the world and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so what did they do? They crucified the light. What do you think they're going to do with all of us? What do you think they're going to do with his children? With those who, who call themselves by his name? The word of God says this, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. The world, friends, is not supposed to like us. Newsflash, Christians. They're not supposed to like us. Not because we're not likable. Absolutely not. But because of who and what we are in Jesus Christ. We are His representatives. We are Christians. Christians are representatives and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. They will persecute us for who and what we are. And because we desire that all men come to repentance and salvation like us, because we desire that they live for the glory of God like us, persecution will come. And persecution will, well, it tells us that we're actually doing something right. Verse 10, it ends this way. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we see the logical sequence in the Beatitudes. We see the natural succession as we move from one Beatitude to the next. Now friends, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is, the primary concern is the kingdom of, of heaven. Which is, which is why our Beatitudes begin, verse 3, with the kingdom of heaven. And look how they end. Here's the envelope structure. The book ends, if you will, of the kingdom. The book ends of the Beatitudes. The kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of heaven, which is to say everything in between concerns the kingdom and our participation in it. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount deals with our hearts. It deals with our relationship with God, our disposition before God, which is why this sermon, the great Sermon on the Mount, and it's been said that this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. This sermon begins with attitudes. With attitudes. The attitudes that are true of the citizens of God's kingdom. Now, as helpful as that play on words might be, that is not what beatitude means. The word comes down to us from Latin, the word beatus, which means, and rightly translated there, as blessed. And thus, the people who have these attitudes, if you will, these affections, these dispositions with respect to the kingdom of God, with reference to God, are, as Jesus said, the blessed. They are, they are the happy. The Beatitudes are a description of the blessed and the happy and the fortunate. The, the citizens of heaven are blessed. Now, you know full well that the New Testament is not written in Latin, but it's written in Greek. And while our Bibles have supplied a title for this section, the Sermon on the Mount, this, this title, the, the Beatitudes, it's an ancient title that comes down to us from church history, the Beatus. But don't be confused about where this title comes from. It doesn't come necessarily from Latin. The Greek word here for blessed is makarios, which as I just mentioned, could be translated happy or, or fortunate. Or as some of your and many of your translation have, they have blessed. And why? Why did they translate it blessed? Because the English word sounds more noble than happy, doesn't it? Blessed are, so on and so forth. There's a, if you will, a religious and a spiritual connotation to this blessing. And unfortunately in English, the word happy is not as virtuous but conjures up the idea of frivolity and shallow enjoyment. While the word blessed, again, sounds so noble and religious. God connotations to it. And so it sounds good. And, and in fact, it is a good word to use here. Nevertheless, in Greek, there are no such distinctions. Happiness and joy and, and blessedness are not necessarily distinguishable. In fact, this word is used with reference to God Himself and to humans. God is happy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1. God is happy. God is the blessed God. He is joyful. And this joy is not shallow, as you well know. And so when we are in proper relationship with God, who is blessed, beloved, we too will be blessed. We too will be happy. We too will be joyful, which is precisely what these Beatitudes are all about. And just to make a point, I will switch back and forth between blessed and happy because that is how the original audience would have heard it. Secondly then, what is this poverty of spirit here? The text says this, happy are the poor in spirit. Now, by admission, this sounds backwards, doesn't it? This sounds upside down. The poor in spirit are not 
happy. Happy people don't have a poor spirit. Well, according to the world's standard, at least. But in God's kingdom, according to Christ the King, the broken are the blessed. The poor in spirit are rich in God, for theirs is the kingdom. In fact, in fact, the door of God's kingdom, the door to the kingdom, is very low, and no one standing tall will ever enter. Again, that is why this beatitude is the first beatitude. A poor spirit is the first step toward the kingdom of God. So let's unpack what Jesus means by this poor in spirit, poor with reference to our spirits. Now, there are two main words used in the New Testament for poor, for the poor. The first refers to someone who works for a living, but is among the poor working class. This is what we call poor folk. The word, this first word, primarily describes socioeconomic status, if you will, their tax bracket. This is not the word that Jesus uses here. The other word, the word tokos, this word paints the picture of a beggar. A beggar who is crouched in a corner, tucked into the shadow, face covered out of shame, lest anyone recognize him, with his hand held out, begging for alms. The tokos were not just the poor, but they were the the beggarly poor, completely dependent on others for sustenance, no means of self-support. The word is often used to describe one who is crouching or, or cowering. It refers to those who are entrenched in the deepest poverty and dereliction. It refers to the miserable, to the impotent, and to the beggarly. But let's be careful here. Jesus is not talking about material poverty. He is is not describing the condition of our wallets, though some of you might be beggarly. He is describing the condition of our spirits. And thus the prepositional phrase, poor in spirit. Poor with reference to our spirit. Jesus is not advocating material poverty here. If he were, then then Christians should be teaching others to be as poor as they possibly can. But that would contradict what Jesus has already said in verse 42 in chapter 5. He says, to give to those who ask. He says to be generous to those who are in need. Chapter 6, rather, of verse 42. And so, if we were reduced to abject poverty, we could not keep that command to be generous. So Jesus is not talking about material poverty. This poverty now is a confession of one's utter unworthiness and worthlessness before God. The poor in spirit know that they cannot offer anything to God and thus they don't try. But simply sit crouched, shame-faced, spiritually destitute, derelict, miserable, and impotent. All they can do is beg. All they can do is hold out their hand and beg. Luther said this about prayer. He said, beggars beg. 
beggars beg. Beloved, this attitude drives us to God because we have nowhere else to go. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all spiritually destitute. Despite our education, despite our wealth, our social standing, despite our health, our accomplishments, or even our religious knowledge, we simply plead for mercy. What's more is this. A poverty of spirit doesn't mean that you're an introvert, okay? Some of us, introversion is, is very popular now. I don't know if you've noticed. A poverty of spirit doesn't mean that we're introverts or that we're quiet or that we're cowardly by nature. Don't confuse a poor spirit with a melancholy personality or, or someone who is dejected or depressed because nowadays they just are, because everyone is, right? Jesus is not promoting an emo-depressive personality. No, no, no. The poverty of spirit Jesus is speaking of here has everything to do with the absolute holiness of God and our absolute depravity by comparison. This poverty of spirit has everything to do with our condition before God and not our natural disposition or personality. Citizens of God's kingdom are poor in spirit whether they are introverted or extroverted. And so don't confuse being soft-spoken or quiet with being humble. They are not necessarily one and the same. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 18 and keep your finger here in Matthew. Luke 18. This is familiar territory. Uh, Jesus gives this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In verse 9, the parable begins... And keep in mind that he speaks this parable, as the text says in verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterer, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed, happy is this man who begs for mercy. Prostrate before the Lord, hands outstretched, he is merciful to those who come to him for mercy. And I tell you, as Jesus did, that this broken man went down to his house justified. For his is the kingdom of heaven. You come poor and beggarly, and he gives you his eternal kingdom. And thus it is the poor in spirit who are the proper 
recipients. They are those who possess. Hear that now. They possess the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, this is a, this is a marvelous blessing. How could we not be happy? The poor in spirit are the possessors of God's kingdom. And I can't say this enough, and we can't be reminded enough, they don't merit the kingdom of heaven. We do nothing to earn or to deserve it. We possess by virtue of God's grace, by virtue of His his graciously granting it to us, undeserved as we are, unworthy though we be. Thirdly then, it is the poorest who possess this kingdom. Now the emphasis, as you look at, and turn back with me to Matthew 5, the emphasis in verse 3, in the latter half of the verse, the emphasis doesn't fall upon God giving us the kingdom. The emphasis is not falling on God gives us the kingdom. He gives the kingdom to the poor in spirit, as true as that is. But the emphasis falls on our possession of it. In fact, this possessive pronoun, theirs, it's fronted for theirs. That pronoun is in the emphatic position. Jesus raising his voice, as it were, for theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. And we might say, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom. And let me say this with confidence. There isn't a proud soul in heaven. Never has been. Never will be. And I dare say they ought not to be a proud Christian on earth. And you say, preacher, practice what you preach. And God knows I struggle with pride and have my own wrestlings with that sin. We all, if we be in Christ, struggle with pride on different levels. Beloved, the prideful and the arrogant, the self-centered, the narcissistic, they don't know the gospel. To be proud-spirited is antithetical to the gospel. The gospel says that we are poor and helpless and lost, dead in our transgressions and sins. The gospel says that we're doomed, condemned in our sins, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And this ought to produce a, a poverty a poverty of spirit. And when God comes, when mercy comes, when grace comes, friends, when Christ comes and saves and forgives and redeems and regenerates and justifies and sanctifies, when He gives us His righteousness and gives us His kingdom, we don't lose that poverty of spirit, but rather we get poorer and poorer yet still. That is what undeservedness does to us that is what grace does that is what the gospel does do you see it humbles us and so our possession of the kingdom is in itself humbling our possession of the kingdom is humbling isn't it humbling to to receive a gift that you know you don't deserve. Some of you give amazing gifts and I have been the beneficiary of your kindness. And more often than not, I have gone home and opened an envelope to be 
crushed in the best way. I don't deserve that kindness. It's almost shameful to be able to accept the kind words and the gifts that you have given to me and my family at times. How much more with the kingdom? We're possessors of the kingdom. How could this make us proud? Nevertheless, there is a certainty in our possession. And might I add a confidence? In fact, that we are possessors. We should be, well, this should make us happy. It should make us rejoice. Not a certainty or a confidence in ourselves. And not a certainty and confidence even in our own poverty. Don't trust in, oh, I'm, I'm humble. I trust in my humility. Don't trust in that. No, a certainty and a confidence, not in ourselves or our poverty of spirit, but in God. Again, not that we deserve it or have merited or earned it, but simply because God is merciful to the poor in spirit. And so we need not concern ourselves at the end of the day with possessing the kingdom, but with being poor in spirit. Which begins with an acknowledgement of our unworthiness. Which raises a fundamental question. Our final question. How do we become people who are poor in spirit? How do we become humble? And we need to be careful right here. Because humility can escape us when we simply ask the question. You try to grasp humility and it escapes you. It's as if thinking about humility and how to, to be humble almost nullifies and, and cancels out the humility. What's more is that these beatitude attitudes are not and could never be produced by Pharisaic man-made religion. And so it's almost pointless to ask, how do I become poor in spirit? But here is the key. This poverty of spirit or, or any of these beatitude attitudes only comes when we properly relate to God by faith, by placing our full trust in Him. Let me explain. We cannot and must not start with what we do. Deeds. But it all starts by simply recognizing and acknowledging who and what we are apart from God. You, you don't need to put yourself down to be humble or poor in spirit because in fact you're already down. Can I relieve you of that pressure? You don't need to put yourself down to be humble. You're already down. We, we don't need to beat ourselves up to be humble because we're already dead. Humility and a poverty of spirit come simply by recognizing who and what we are before God. I've told this story various times. A famed Christian scholar and professor was invited to speak at a chapel service at a Christian college in the L.A. area. After delivering this magisterial sermon to this young undergraduate audience, this speaker was quickly surrounded by students who wanted to thank the man for his address. The professor was approached by, by one particularly zealous student and he came asking for prayer. Oh, Dr. So-and-so, please pray for me. Pray that I would decrease and that God would increase. Pray that I would be nothing. Yes, that I would be nothing. And the professor 
he cut the student off and he, and he looked at him rather stern-faced and he said, young man, take it by faith, you are nothing. Don't pray about it, but wake up and realize it. How do we become humble? Where does humility and a brokenness of spirit start? By simply acknowledging the truth. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion begins this way. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Indeed, he writes, our poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits reposing in God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man cast us especially compels us to look upward. And to this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God. True humility, true wisdom begins with a vision of an infinitely holy God in all of His sinless perfection, which will thus allow us to see ourselves as sinners by comparison and by contrast. In becoming poor in spirit, we must not look to ourselves alone, but to God and behold His glory and behold His perfections and His sinless beauty. Beloved, where does all of this come from? Where shall we get a vision of God and of ourselves? Friends, humility begins with a recognition of the truth. God's truth and God's Word is a sure and steady guide, an anchor. He has decisively revealed to us through His Word that we are fallen. And the Word of God accurately describes who we are. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 3 says that by God's divine power, He has given to us all that we need for life and godliness in the true knowledge of Him. Apart from a consistent daily diet of Word, you will not grow in the faith. I lo- we love theology at this church. We are reformed as they come. But friends, if you don't get to the basic daily reading of God's holy word, you will have a jaundiced view of yourself and the world. And thus you will not be poor in spirit and you won't be humble. Friends, this is the only book I have ever read that reads me. It tells me and reveals to me who and what I am. It shows me and all of us. It reveals to us God. And therein are we humbled. Therein shall we become poor in spirit. Therein is my poverty revealed and my need disclosed. And therein is my God who fills that need. Therein in the pages of Scripture is He made manifest. You're going to say this, no doubt. Well, there are so many people who read their Bibles and they're not humble. You are right about that. You know why they're not? Because they read to read. But we must read to believe. We read 
to see Christ, the living word, to put our faith in and our trust in what he says to us. In various times and in various ways, God spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. And so, it's a faith issue, is it not? If you believe, if you are a Christian, you will be humble and you will demonstrate a poverty of spirit. And if not, if you don't believe, then you won't be humble or poor in spirit. It's that simple. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the 20th century. The way, quote, to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Read this book, he says. Read this book about Him. Read His law. Look at what He expects from us and contemplate standing before Him. Tis also to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and to view Him as we see Him in the Gospels. Look at Him. And the more we look at Him, the more hopeless we shall feel by ourselves and in and of ourselves. And the more we shall become poor in spirit. Look at Him. Keep looking at Him and then you will have nothing to do with yourself. It will be done. You cannot truly look at Him without feeling your absolute poverty and emptiness. Then you will say to Him, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Empty, hopeless, naked and vile, but He is all and all sufficient. Yea, all I need in Thee to find O Lamb of God, I come. Let me end very practically now. A few checkpoints to help you along the road. How can we know if we are truly humble? Quickly, let me list out seven tests, seven checkpoints. Firstly, the humble person has died to self, and they are increasingly selfless. Are you becoming more selfless. A servant to your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your community, your neighbors. Are you a a servant to those people and those strangers that are around you in the Taco Bell line, which I am in far too often than I ought to be? Are you willing to serve them? Perhaps even open a door. Are Are you increasing in your selflessness. Secondly, are you lost in the wonder of God? The humble will meditate and and contemplate and as we heard on Thursday, consider Christ, the greatness of God. And in so doing, there is a self-forgetfulness there. Thirdly, the humble see others' strengths more as well as their own weaknesses. The humble see others' strengths more as well as their own weaknesses. Many of us are plagued by the ability to see others' weaknesses more than their strengths. Fourthly, the humble are not complainers. They will not complain no matter how bad the situation or circumstance. Fifthly, the humble are quick to forgive. Are you quick to forgive? They will not complain And they are quick to forgive. They're not grudge holders or those who harbor bitterness. 
Sixthly, the humble are prayerful. The humble spend time in prayer. And lastly, the humble are amazed by the grace of God that God has shown to them. I'm not speaking about the general grace of salvation that we have in Jesus. But they are especially amazed by the grace that God has shown them. The grace of God is a theme in their lives. And many of us, even now, are in the throes of trial and tribulation. Because God wants to humble you. Because He doesn't want you to show up on the shores of heaven with an ounce of pride. Praise God for the trial or trials that He has granted to you to make you more like His Son. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Let's come to Him in prayer. Good and gracious God, by Your goodness and grace, You grant repentance. Repentance that leads to life. Repentance that draws us into deeper communion and more intimate fellowship with You so that we might walk in the light, even as you are in the light, and in you is no darkness at all. Lord, give us the happiness of a broken heart. Protect us from a shallow, slap-happy faith that does not understand your holiness, nor our sin and brokenness. Protect us from cheap religiosity that takes your grace for granted, that fails to understand the blessedness of a poor spirit. Make us, Lord, serious Christians, joyful and full of thanks, heartbroken and filled with love for you and for our neighbor. Give us this brokenheartedness and protect us from pride, for of such is the kingdom. Make us, we pray, more like Jesus as we look full into his wonderful face. Bless our worship now as we continue to sing. This we pray for our good and your glory. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.